0: Hello readers, my name is Jason Jefferies and I am your host for Bookin' presented by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is David Pluff, campaign manager for Barack Obama in 2008 and later a senior advisor in Obama's White House. His new book is A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, published by our friends at Viking. David, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for
0: having me on. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And David, our bookstore, Quail Ridge Books, is a politically neutral bookstore. I, Jason Jeffries, the general manager of Quail Ridge Books, the co-owner and co-director of the North Carolina Book Festival, and the host of this podcast, am not politically neutral. Um, How the hell do we get this buffoon Donald Trump out of the White House? (laughs) Is there an easy answer?
1: i I wish there was but there's not which is why i wrote the book so i think people who have been deeply involved in politics my sincere hope is you know they'll pick up an idea or two they haven't thought about for how to be more active but i'm most excited for readers who either haven't been involved in politics or maybe they've donated or haven't volunteered so i spent a lot of time you know, from a former presidential campaign manager's perspective, you know, explaining a presidential campaign, what it is and what it isn't, different types of volunteer activity. So, you know, I'm because that's what it's going to take. It's going to take people who've been involved in politics doing even more, but it's going to take a whole lot of people who've really never thought about becoming a precinct volunteer captain or doing weekend canvassing in North Carolina, you know, Wisconsin, and do that. So Donald Trump is deeply unpopular, but because of the Electoral College, you know he's gonna uh, be difficult to beat uh, in some of the battleground states and so um you know we don't yet know is we're having this conversation much less when i'm in raleigh who the nominee is going to be mm-hmm. but we know that whoever it is you know we're all going to have to rally behind that person and take some personal responsibility for the campaign mm-hmm. you know are you doing something every day to further the cause
0: Right. Thank you. And an important aspect of your book revolves around the desire that we should all have to control the narrative. As a former campaign advisor for one of the most successful campaigns in modern history, let me ask you, what happened in Iowa, how did the party steer the narrative in the aftermath, and how should they respond going forward?
1: Well, clearly a bunch of different things went wrong in Iowa. So there was a problem with some of the technology. It looks like the training around that technology wasn't done. Um, you know, there was human errors in terms of counting. Um, you know, they didn't have enough phone lines for people. Most people in Iowa didn't want to use technology. They wanted to phone in, they wanted enough phone lines. And we hear the Trump supporters are jamming up the phone lines. So it was, a, it was just literally everything that could what go wrong went wrong. But listen, at the end of the day, is anyone going to to vote next November based on what happened in Iowa, I really don't think so. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think in Iowa, you know, I think one of the challenging things that happened was that night they kept saying there were still going to be results reported. And so I think when that didn't happen, they paid an even steeper price. Mm. Um, so, you know, but I think at the end of the day, in this election, when I, when I talk about controlling the narrative, it's we all, almost all of us, well, actually all of us, whether it's online or offline, we have a circle of people that we can influence. And so, are we spreading positive messages that our Democratic nominee is putting out? I think a lot of us are much more comfortable sharing the latest outrage about Trump. But, you know, we have to talk about taxes and health care and foreign policy and Medicare and Social Security and character and all the things. And it doesn't take a long time you know, with a couple of clicks on your keyboard or press a couple of buttons on your phone, uh, and you know, you've shared content. And that's the other uh, part of my book I'm I'm really interested to engage with people on, is everybody can be a content creator. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have a neighbor who voted for Trump last time, was not gonna this time. Ask them if it's okay to film them, to pick out your phone, take out your phone, film them. Throw that online. Maybe it doesn't reach a lot of people. Maybe it goes viral. But, like, I think we all have to understand, particularly because the right has such an advantage. You know, they got Fox and Breitbart. And, you know, there was a report this week saying there's like 20 new conservative public publications in Michigan, all phony, all there to distribute, you know, Trump content. You've got, um, you know, Sinclair Broadcasting all over the country. So they just have content that's being pushed out and pushed out, not to mention Trump's uh, financial advantage. And so we all have to figure out, like, what can we do in our lives uh, to reach people? Some of that's fighting back against lies and nonsense. But a lot of it's just, you know, helping um, amplify, um, you know, our nominee's message and the contrast with Trump.
0: Right. Thank you. And, um, David, you say early on in your book that— press coverage has become more Jerry Springer and less Walter Cronkite. Um, How should Democrats respond to this journalistic environment? And as a second part of this question, uh, just because Walter Cronkite was less sensationalistic, wasn't his approach just a different way, albeit a more civilized way, of controlling the political narrative?
1: Well, I mean I I do think you know yeah we we always think the past you know was more romantic and more fair you know but but I do think that there was much more um, you know, facts, I think, were more prevalent. I think substance was covered much more so than sort of the political horse race. I mean, look at all the coverage around the Democratic debate and primary right now. It's almost all about polls and money. And, you know, that's important because people need to know, you know, how the campaign's going, but mm-hmm. less attention, I think, on substance. So, you know, the other thing I think that's changed is just, you know, we, we the proliferation of all these, um, whether it's the Epoch time. Whether it's local, state-based, um, sort of faux conservative news um, outlets, I mean, it's hard for people to distinguish from what is a what is a journalistic outlet we can trust versus just a piece of content from somebody with an agenda, and so. But there is still a lot of. You know, national and local news um, that's being um, reported and and investigative work. Um, And one of the problems is it's not reaching the people we need it to reach politically. So, you know, there may be a story in North Carolina on Trump says he's now going to cut Medicare and Social Security. What would that impact be? Like, there's probably 150 to 250 thousand people in North Carolina you'd want to get that local news story to. So, part of what I think we have to be smarter about in campaign. Is the campaigns themselves need to not just put their money behind advertising, but behind boosting news? I wish that wasn't the case, but we can all do that too. So if we see, you know, I do that occasionally on Twitter, which is why I have my big audience, our bigger audience. You'll see, uh, you know, a story in Wisconsin about the trade war um, and the effect that it's had. You know, sharing that is super important. So um, I still think that, and people still trust that. So uh, I think one of our jobs as citizens is, is if we see a piece of news that we think could be impactful, whether to get people more excited excited to volunteer uh, and get involved in the campaign or maybe we will persuade some friends or family we have that are truly undecided we can't assume someone else will do it like post it um, that's the other thing I, I really try and capture in the book is you can't assume anything mm. there is no magic cavalry that's gonna you know kind of appear on the horizon the cavalry is all of us <laughs> and you know as scary as that is i think we have to meet the moment
0: Right. Thank you. And um, earlier, David, you alluded to the importance uh, once a candidate is chosen to uh, rallying behind that candidate. One of the problems in two thousand sixteen, and not the only problem, but one of them, lied in uh, refusal of some to support Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton and Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. As a result, many of Bernie's supporters voted for a third party candidate, or even some voted for Donald Trump. Uh, if Bernie Sanders proves to be the nominee this time, how do we? We make sure the party gets behind him and if he is not the nominee if biden miraculously comes back and wins for example how do we make sure Bernie's supporters coalesce around the democratic candidate
1: well, I'd say first, the vast majority of people who are supporting another candidate will support the Democratic nominee. So I think we should be careful not to overstate this problem. But, but you know, you've read my book. Thank you for doing that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I spend some time on this mm-hmm. because even if we're talking about a small percentage of the people who might um, – you know be concerned and, and say well maybe I'm not going to vote or maybe I'll vote third party that could cost us the election mm-hmm. so so even though that we should not overstate the scale of the problem mm-hmm. but I think the importance of the problem is huge so I think again that falls on first of all the winner has to be super gracious <laughs> and has to make it clear that anybody who supported a different candidate is welcome we want to listen to you you can improve our campaign all of us who supported other candidates you know um, need to figure out out, like what would it take for us to get involved mm-hmm. uh, you know the volunteers locally in North Carolina who support whoever the nominee is you know they should host uh, house parties and ask people to come over who supported other candidates and you know that session may be tough You know, some of the people who supported folks who didn't win may say, you lied about my candidate, or, you know, uh, it wasn't fair. And that's okay. People have to have time to process. So uh, what I, I know won't work is for the people who... Don't automatically say, okay, I, I fought my hardest for my candidate. They didn't win. Now the big battle's Trump. And again, that's most people, but it's not all people. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that, you know, it's not going to be a dictate. Uh, these good people need to get in line. That never works. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so th- there has to be organizing done. But again, one of the messages in my book is I hope our nominees' campaign does everything perfectly. They won't. But even if they did, they can't do everything. And so, you know, if you're sitting in a, particularly in a battle ground state like North Carolina mm-hmm. and you know you are you a, a volunteer leader for the nominee um, but you know there's 50 or 100 people you know who supported other candidates take it on yourself to invite them over to an event and you know again let them kind of complain and and even attack you uh, and let them get that out of their system it's really important um, and let them say listen uh, you know w- let's figure out a way to work uh, move forward together so you know I, th- I think that again could we lose the election because of people who supported other Democratic candidates don't come in? I don't think it's likely. But again, if this is super close, um, you know, it's going to matter. And, and I think, you know, there's nothing more important than who the president of the United States is. Mm-hmm. So you can't leave anything on the table. And Trump's not going to. I mean, the very mo- the most important thing to this guy is not governing, it's not foreign policy, it's not the economy, it's re-election. Because if he's re-elected, he is personally ratified. His style of politics is ratified, which I think is such a frightening thing for the country. So we are facing an opponent that is so incredibly focused. And unlike 16, when his campaign was kind of a shit show give, excuse the expression mm-hmm. this one's very professional it's very well resourced they've had the time that incumbents always have uh, to prepare for the race and so um you know uh, he beat us in 16 um you know frustratingly but that was with a campaign that was far inferior uh, you know to what he's building now
0: right thanks david and um to build off of this question just a little bit uh In 2016, forgive this sort of pun, but it seems like we were forcing people to choose between an apple and an orange uh, when what they really wanted was a banana. Uh, And, you know, I don't want to overstate and I also don't want to understate the importance of people who did vote on third-party candidates. Um, Is the system always going to be an us versus them, or will we get to a place where it really isn't us versus them and also them and also them?
1: Well, first of all, as it relates to this election, um, you know, as you see in my book, I spend quite a bit of time on this third party question because I think people who are going to be engaged in the election, either formally volunteering through our nominees campaign or just kind of going about their life, you are going to run into people who say, you know what, uh, I'm not sure I can vote for either one of them. So I, but I always vote, and I'm going to vote third party. You know, you also may have people say, I'm not going to vote. So we have to convert those people. Um, And so, you know, I spent some time in the book, you know, with some ideas for how to do that. But, you know, people have their own ideas. My my major point here is more the spirit of it, which is you need to have your antenna up and understand that there are some people out there. um, And Trump needs that because, you know, he hasn't shown much interest in growing his base traditionally. So, you know, he can win states like North Carolina and Wisconsin you know, in Pennsylvania and Arizona and Michigan, um, you know, with 48 and a half percent of the vote. Why? Because, you know, third party vote um, is high enough. If he's gotta get 50% of the vote, I'm not sure he can win, so this is important. So, you know, in the long term, not even long term, medium term, let's say over the next 20 years, this is just my opinion as a citizen, I would expect there there might be more consistent third-party candidates, if not third parties. I, I think it's hard to argue that people are satisfied, to your point, about the choices they have. The market is not, the political market is not serving people's desires. So, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we start having, you know, um, you know, other parties, maybe you know, parties aimed at the center, maybe parties aimed at the hard left or the hard right. So, whether that's good for uh, you know one party or the other, I think it probably depends on the election. But um, you know, I think particularly young people, um, you know, they're they're going to be impatient with the fact that they only have two choices. Now, in this election, you know, there may there are going to be third party candidates. There's not going to be probably a strong third party emerge but you know we've got to get rid of trump so people want you know one of the things i mentioned in the book is folks need to understand that someone who holds their nose and votes who really doesn't like our candidate but hates trump might have thought third party but you convinced them to vote that vote counts the same you know as someone who's got a bumper sticker on their car like we gotta understand that and you know sometimes that means political lectures to these voters is not going to be helpful it's simply like hey you want to get rid of trump i do yeah i got concerns with my with our candidate too i don't like this about him but you know they're not perfect but the only way to get rid of trump uh and make sure it's a four-year disaster not an eight-year disaster our country may not recover from uh is to get people like you um you know to vote uh for our nominee so I, i think this election may come down to that which is can we convince enough people who, you know, might be holding their nose or voting unenthusiastically to do so? And that, you know, that doesn't, you know, that's not like a West Wing episode. <laughs> you know, it's not as, uh, that, that's not as, as uh, you know, sort of inspirational as we'd probably like, but I think it's the reality.
0: Thank you, David. Listeners, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with David Pluff. The book and podcast is sponsored by Libro FM audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with David Pluff author of A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, published by our friends at Viking. David, in one of your chapters titled Create, you call for creative types, uh, and you alluded to this a bit earlier, um, these types being songwriters, actors, videographers, filmmakers, podcast hosts, to produce content and push it out to the public on social media. Um, could you explain in a little bit further detail how this can help to defeat Donald Trump? <laughs>
1: Well, sure, and you know, I I do make the point uh, very uh, clearly and consistently in that chapter that anybody can be a creator, so you're just somebody, um, you know, with a phone, and maybe you go out and knock doors for a day, you know, take a quick video and, and, uh, you know, Create an Instagram story. You've got a neighbor who voted for Trump um, who's now going to vote for our, our candidate. Take a quick video of that. Um, you know, you've got, uh, you know, an interesting, um, you know, meme or GIF. Share that. So I want to be very clear about that. We can't, none of us can wait for the content creative class uh, and assume we don't have a role to play because, in many respects, that content will be authentic, uh, much more authentic than other content because it's. You're, you know you're just an average person reaching other average people but I do think people who have you know sort of extraordinary creative gifts um, you know we I'd like to get them more involved you know uh, and and you know yes encouraging people to register and vote that's important but also doing great creative around Trump's you know uh, tax cuts and how they've only helped their wealthy do some creative around people who've been harmed by Trump's Healthcare policy um do some creative around the fact that people there's a there's a group of people out in this country who basically are just exhausted by trump you know and they're just tired of the tweeting and he dominates our life so you know whether you're a songwriter uh, a filmmaker um somebody who um is an instagram or youtube influencer you know those folks have huge audience right and if they would put out creative um you know, it's going to be much more interesting, quite frankly, than what the campaign puts out for two reasons. One, it'll probably be better. But two, um, it also, you know, is not propaganda. People will buy it more because it's just coming from person who feels strongly about something. Like they're not part of the campaign. So that's another way I think we fight back against the rights – information infrastructure advantage uh is is most you know i don't want to say all certainly but the majority of people who are entertainers and celebrities um you know lean democratic or are democratic and they've got massive audiences on social media platforms and so to leverage that you know once a week let's say it doesn't have to be all the time could make a huge impact so i think citizens need to do their part but the creative class hopefully will step up their game too
0: absolutely thank you David and um, in the section of this book titled offense defense you state that if Barack Obama had done the things that Trump has done he would have been impeached the very next morning because that's how Republicans roll I also think of the Republicans refusal to support Obama's nomination to the Supreme Court while he was still president Uh, in your opinion why are Republicans able to get away with these types of maneuvers
1: Well, first of all, I don't think they really care what criticism they get from more elite quarters, editorial pages, they just don't care. Uh, Mitch McConnell in particular, I mean, he's he's just got a, a suit of armor on. He just doesn't care. Uh, he's gonna do what advantages his party above all else. I mean, I think he deserves a place in, in hell for that, but uh, it's what he does. I mean, you know, and he's even asked, like, what happens if uh, Trump got a Supreme Court nomination now the same you know time that Obama did in the calendar he said well I put it forward why because it's a Republican president so I just think they are first of all they don't believe in government so they're not activists so anything they can do to starve government they want to do um, it's all about maintaining their power um you know trump is is you know we we give trump appropriately gets a lot of criticism for trying to destroy institutions and the rule of law but he's aided and embedded by most republicans in congress and some of that's because you know they fear trump's base but you know people like mitch mcconnell you mentioned that with merrick garland and the Supreme Court, have been doing it for a long time so um i just think at the end of the day they um if we, can i i'll be i'll use a little friend they just don't give a shit mm-hmm. like they don't they don't care about getting criticized by editorial pages they don't care about breaking norms um you know mcconnell in particular is ruthless i don't think mcconnell and trump my guesses are like warm friends mm-hmm. but i think they share that which is you know they're going to do what's best for them um uh specifically in their party generally above all else. I mean, with Trump, I think it's really just about him. I mean, he'd throw the Republican Party over the side if he needed to. But McConnell's all about, um, you know, he's he and, he and Pelosi, uh, you know, I think Pelosi's obviously a constructive <laughs> uh, force in, uh, in American life. But, you know, these two are just political ninjas. They have great skill. Uh, and so it's always difficult when McConnell, you know, is so skilled. Um, he's bloodless. Um, and, you know, that's a dangerous opponent and i think he's shown us time and time again how effective he can be not for the country sadly uh, but for his own narrow partisan goals
0: right thank you for that answer david um Let's next talk about battleground states. You spend some time on this in your book. I'm speaking to you from one of them, as you have brought up. Uh, So rather than approach the topics of battlegrounds as a whole, which you do so eloquently uh, in a chapter of your book, tell me what we can do here in North Carolina specifically to defeat Trump.
1: Well, you know, I talk about this in, in the book, I mean, ultimately the decision about what is a battleground state and what isn't is made by the candidates. So, our nominee is going to have to decide which states they um, credibly think they could win. Um, we know that Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania will be in the mix. You know, my hope is North Carolina, Arizona, and maybe Florida are as well. I think Georgia is going, going to require a hard look as well. So, so in North Carolina, you know, Barack Obama won it in 08 lost it narrowly in 12, uh, Trump won it in 16, but not by a huge margin. At the same time, a democratic governor was elected and you know Democrats had a pretty good uh, year in 2018 up and down the ballot. So so what's interesting, so North Carolina is a state where um, there's enough people in the state who are registered to vote, and certainly when you add eligible to beat Donald Trump, there just is so there's two parts in north carolina it's probably half persuasion so there's a bunch of people who talk about these famous obama trump voters but but they do exist in north carolina and elsewhere can you get enough of them back uh and then you know can we really max out our suburban vote share um some of those people voted for hillary um but you know some of them might have voted for trump particularly women and, and just they're open to an alternative so to win a state like north carolina we just have to max out our suburban uh, numbers um you know suburbs of raleigh and charlotte um all throughout the state um but then we also have to register and turn out uh, young voters uh and voters of color um and you know african-american vote is obviously super important in north carolina but you also have a growing latino and asian population so to win north carolina you have to do it all you know you've got to be you've got to hit your persuasion targets so those are true undecided voters get enough of them and then if not fundamentally change the electorate, certainly improve it. So there's more Democratic base voters um, on election day, um, you know, by some decent number, um, you know, than than might have happened otherwise. And you know that requires good organizing. It requires great volunteer work. It also requires a candidate who can motivate people. So let's hope we nominate somebody that you know motivates people to register and to 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 turn out and to volunteer so i think it would be a tragedy if north carolina was not uh, a core battleground state so so it's hard i mean you know trump's got an easier road to victory than we do but if we can really add a couple hundred two hundred fifty thousand people to the roles through registration and turnout and run a great persuasion campaign, we can win it. So um, you know, I would expect North Carolina its electoral votes to be, you know, at the center of this election. Um, you know, in two thousand and twelve when we lost North Carolina and the Obama reelect, it was the only battleground we lost. And I don't know if you recall, I mean by the end you know, we had, had paired back our spending and our time because it was clear that it might we we might lose it narrowly, and we had other states that would be the tipping point. You know, Ohio, uh, Virginia, um, you know, uh, Wisconsin, and so um, I think our nominee, unfortunately, Ohio probably won't be a battleground. Iowa may not be a battleground, sadly. Uh, and so we have to have a state like North Carolina the mix. So my hope is everybody in North Carolina has an opportunity to help our nominee knowing that their work could decide the presidency.
0: That is my hope too, David. Thank you very much. Um, I want to talk about money. You do have a chapter on money in this book, and you state in this chapter that volunteering for a campaign is more important than money, and point taken, uh, but money is still very important. In fact, uh, is likely the most important part of a campaign, I cannot imagine a person running for president without a huge amount of financial backing or personal wealth, uh, especially when you look at the Bushes, Trump's Bloomberg, Hillary Clinton, etc. How do you get away from this type of financial backing and mobilize a population through small donations from millions of people like Barack Obama did in 2008?
1: Well, you know, and, you know, we're seeing some of the candidates running this time. Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, um, Elizabeth Warren has had some success. So hopefully whoever we nominate. Now, if it's Michael Bloomberg, we don't have to worry about fundraising. <laughs> He's made that clear. But everybody else. Yeah, so so my point in the chapter is the one thing most people do around politics is give. And that's important. Um, and our nominee is going to be the disadvantage coming out of the primaries to Trump. So if you have the financial ability to give, please do. Uh, but just but do more than that. I mean, that was my message, which is your time in many respects is more valuable than your money. So make a plan. What money can you give? That's gotta be part of it. Can you give $100? Can you give 250? Can you give 500 or 1,000? And that's gonna be enormously important, but also figure out your time. But also, you know, and that's the easiest thing to do because we can just whip out our phone and and give, and it takes, you know, literally five seconds. Um, You know, the time is more important, whether that's formally volunteering and doing four hours of canvassing, um, you know, in wake county or you know just spending some time on your social media platforms sharing content or creating it um and you know if if if, if giving uh, is a sac like what i don't want people to do is feel like they've got to sacrifice basic needs because there's enough people out there who've got the financial security to give that people who really are struggling financially um you know don't shouldn't feel that they need to. Their their time is gonna be more than enough. So uh, but I think money is the thing most people do. It's the thing that's easiest to do. And that's why I wanted to spend the least time on it. So it's super important. I spend some time in that chapter really explaining why the money's important and how it's spent in a presidential campaign. Uh but, you know, I, I view it as money plus. Um I think was all we all need to figure out like what can we do on top of whatever our generous financial support uh, is.
0: Yeah, as in a brief addendum to this question, do you think it's really possible for someone like Donald Trump or Michael Bloomberg with such immense personal wealth to speak for the majority of Americans?
1: well of course what's interesting so first of all Trump is not financing his campaign first of all he's not as liquid as he says right but right. Um, you know he's raising a lot of money Bloomberg's not I mean I think that's that's a fair question right which is people who um, have not I mean one of Barack Obama's strengths when he ran was you know he had just, he and Michelle had just paid off their student loans. And, you know, before his books really took off, you know, they were really, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Hmm. Um, And so um, I think that is a fair question. Um, You know, now all the candidates running for president, except for Pete Buttigieg, are millionaires. We have some billionaires. So, you know, I I think that that is a question. But I I think, you know, you have to look at, at what are people proposing. And if what they're proposing are ideas and solutions, that would help the average working person. Then I think even if they live in slightly rarefied air, um, you know, they're going to be a good advocate. Um, but, you know, that's a fair question. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if it is Bloomberg and Trump, it's the battle of the billionaires. Now, one is actually a true billionaire <laughs> and one of the wealthiest people in the, the world. The other one is a little bit of a carnival barker. But, you know, someone who lives in a gold-plated, you know, uh, penthouse in Fifth Avenue before he came to Washington. So, um, you know, yeah, these are not like tribunes of the working class. Um, so I think that's a fair question. One of the things I was exciting for me in the 2018 elections. You saw so many of the Democrats who won in state legislative races and in U.S. House races. They were just like the rest of America, right? They were just average people who, you know, decided they would throw their hat in the ring. And that was incredibly exciting.
0: All right. Thank you, David. And um, finally, as we said earlier, You directed one of the most successful campaigns in modern political history in 2008 and led Obama to re-election in 2012. What would you have to do differently if you were running a campaign in 2020 than you did in 2008 and 2012? And How can our listeners act upon your experiences considering the difference in the world today?
1: Well, what's interesting is in 2008, um, it was really the internet for the first time that was kind of a central battlefield in presidential politics. By 2012, the internet was still important, but more activity had gravitated to Facebook. Um, by 2016, Facebook was was probably the dominant battlefield in politics, and we know how the Russians and others tried to benefit Trump with that. Um, now, you know, Facebook is still probably at the top of the list, but... Instagram, which is obviously a sister platform, uh, you know, Snapchat, Twitter, TikTok. So first of all, there's just a lot more YouTube there's a lot more, you have to have platform-specific strategies and campaigns. Yeah. So that's one. You know, a lot more diversity. Secondly, you're running against Trump and he, every day, you know, tries to dominate and, and foul the oxygen. Um, so that's different. I mean, you know, it's not like, hey, I'm going to go give my speech on healthcare today and the news media will cover that um, and I'll move on. It's like, well, Trump just did this crazy thing and that's what the media is focused on. So I think we, you know, you, you have to understand and that how you deal with him is, is really important. Um, but I think we all have a role to play, which is, you know, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Snapchat, if you're on Instagram, how are you using those platforms to further our nominee's message and defend against Trump's nonsense and the disinformation? Um, how are you... Um, Uh, pushing through as a citizen because if we all say you know what it's the nominee's job to deal with trump and win the message war um and then we're just going to register voters as important as registering voters is it's not enough we all have to step into that i think breach um Uh, The other thing that's changed is obviously the disinformation that's coming from overseas. But, you know, Trump is kind of a master of disinformation. Uh, There was a really important article in The Atlantic last week that really went under the hood of of Trump's campaign and their disinformation. So, you know, they're basically trying to circumvent the news. So, you know, when, when some of the impeachment testimony was happening, you know, they'd work, they'd create their own content, almost like a news report that would run, you know, on local news. Facebook pages and, and reach people. So they're going to try and create their alternative reality. And listen, I'm not suggesting any of us can can convince a, a diehard MAGA person to vote differently. That's not what this is about. It's about reaching people who might be persuadable. But also, if, if you lift up your head and say, you know what, I'm going to fight back against that lie. I'm going to push out this great piece of content that shows how our nominee is going to be good for teachers. Other people in your feed will see that and say, hey, I'm going to do that too. Like, there's comfort in numbers. There's almost a permission. Structure that gets created. So, I think the other thing that's changed is Barack Obama would not have been president without millions of Americans, um, you know, driving his campaign on the ground, volunteers. Um, we need like double or triple that, and th- and that's that's super stressful. I think to think about how much is riding on people, but the other thing that's changed from 2012 to now is just the disinformation the Republican ecosystem has gotten so powerful, so much and it was powerful back then, but it's gotten so much more diversified, so much more powerful, that we're at an even bigger disadvantage than we were in 2012. So, you know, I think I think just the sheer number of different places you need to reach people um, has changed a lot. But also the fact that we 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 have a lot of, of weaponry on the other side aimed at us. And, you know, that's intensified and increased. And so that's why, uh, again, coming back to kind of the central thesis of of my book, um, you know, for me, it's even less about the specifics I get into. It's the spirit. you got to own this campaign. And what does that mean for you? It's different for everybody. It could mean you're going to go to a battleground state and, and, and volunteer there for two months if you can. It could mean you're going to share content every day on Facebook and Instagram. It, it could be you're going to make phone calls from home. It certainly means you're going to make sure everybody in your circle of influence is registered and knows how to vote early. And, you know, it's just we got, we got to take ownership of it. And that may seem obvious, but I think the requirements this time are different. I, I almost think there needs to be a a. a to it, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Because the stakes are so high, because eight years of Trump is not twice as bad as four years of Trump. It's probably like 20 years as bad, uh, 20 times as bad, because it's going to have a compounding effect that I think will be hard for us to shake off as a country.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, David. Listeners, I've been speaking with David Plouffe, author of A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, published by our friends at Viking. It is a very useful handbook to the upcoming election. David will be joining us in Raleigh on Saturday, March 7th at 7 p.m. More information about this event can be found at www.quailridgebooks.com. David, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for uh, having me. Look forward to seeing everybody. North Carolina is always a place I love going to, uh, in and out of politics. I'll be there with my my uh, my oldest my son too which is a special treat so uh look forward to ever seeing everybody uh in march
0: see you then once again i would like to thank david pluff for joining me copies of a citizen's guide to beating donald trump can be purchased in store Quail Ridge Books and online at www.wailridgebooks.com. David Clough will be joining us March 7th, 2020 in Raleigh. A ticket to his event comes with a copy of A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump and is $30. More information can be found on our website. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Booking. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.